and welcome to Friday, September 6, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, climate change takes center stage. Kelsey Gavard visits Iowa during a quiet week here. And more on the Democrats' virtual and yet very real caucus issues. Ah, see what I did there? Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the State Capital Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprise. With me today are Thomas Nelson of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Aaron. And also Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Among our absences this week on the podcast, Brett Hayworth is unavailable for taping by virtue of him covering U.S. Rep. Steve King in Ottawa this morning, where Brett assured me he took his own water bottle just to be safe. So everyone <laughs> wanted to assure everyone about that. You can find on, on <laughs> Iowa Politics on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. First up this week, climate change was in focus as CNN hosted a town hall series with roughly half of the Democratic presidential field to discuss the issue. It had to be a town hall format, by the way, because the National Democratic Party has nixed the idea of a climate change-focused debate. Thomas, I know that you sat through all 10 hours or whatever it was of those town halls, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if you did, let's just say hypothetically you didn't. Uh, I know you've at least heard this candidates as they come to the Cedar Valley. So Democratic voters constantly, consistently say, uh, along with health care, that this is one of the most important issues to them in this election. As you see the candidates coming through your area, is, is that being reflected in, the, in their remarks? Do you hear the candidates talk about this issue regularly? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, you know, um, every single candidate has has broached climate change or taken a question on climate change during every single visit, um, you know, this year, at least to the Waterloo and Cedar Valley area. Um, you know, I think overall, uh, you know, climate change has become a big deal, a bigger deal for Democrats and um, who are running for president. And I think to a certain degree, it's become a partisan issue. And it's become something that they used to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, go after the president on saying that he hasn't done enough. And that, especially considering the fact that uh, President Trump uh, pulled out of the uh, Paris climate, uh, climate accords. And because that's been it's been an easy target, especially considering all the news that's come out about it. And the fact that we've had some dire news on climate that what within a decade or more. Uh, we're going to be at the, you know, the point of no return when it comes to whether or not we can, you know, uh, improve the climate and to a certain extent save the earth. Uh, and I think that's that's become a major issue for every uh, for every Democrat running right now. They're running on a platform on a lot of different platforms, but climate change and uh, uh, understanding that climate change is a real thing has become the big, a, a big issue. So that you can usually count on that being brought up, along with immigration and you know, uh, immigration, uh, climate, and healthcare are the three main issues mm -hmm. Democrats are hitting on. And climate change yeah. is is always going. Uh, I've heard it every time. Yeah, have you? And it's tough. And, and I've tried to look for this too, Thomas. Do you mm -hmm. sense? Have you seen any uh, daylight in, in in between what what the candidates are saying? I mean, everybody, as you said, 
everybody talks about the need to address it. Some some candidates uh, put out their their plans. Do you see in any daylight between what the Democrats are saying? Are they all pretty similar plans as, as far as how they would address? There was briefly a little bit of difference in opinion, especially when um, the uh, that the Green New Deal came out, and you know that was mm -hmm. the that was the big topic. What was that like a year ago? And um, you know they when they were discussing that, um, you know uh, when the, uh, what's the representative Alexandria Casio Cortez brought that up. Um, I think a lot of candidates kind of there were some that were like, no, this is my Green Deal, and this no, this is my green new deal but uh, you know it's at the at the end of the day um the it, there wasn't the 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 daylight wasn't so much in what they and what they were proposing which was you know uh you know very similar policies it wasn't just that they're in differing in names the pete Buttigieg, um you know climate change fact you know plan or or the Bernie Sanders climate change plan, or Seth Moulton's climate change plan, all of them kind of hit the same marks. Uh, the only difference was that they had a different name. Um, I haven't heard of a candidate come out yet and, you know, kind of get, to, you know, when it comes to specific policy points, really different opinion. I think, uh, you know, there might be, there might be some uh, differing thoughts on how to maybe how to go about it, but they haven't really expressed that yet. I don't think there's been a lot of detail yet on how they would approach, um, approach, uh, to, you know, hand, uh, addressing climate change, at least not outside of their specific policy points that they, you know, that they bring up often. Yeah, yeah. Um, Todd, uh, I, I want to shift this to a general election um, viewpoint here. Is this a dangerous? Is climate change a dangerous issue for the Democrats uh, here, especially in a state like Iowa? Um, Democrats are trying to win back rural areas and farmers uh, in part. They're doing that by hammering the Trump administration for its trade and ethanol policies, which have hurt corn and soybean prices. Um, do Democrats threaten to, you know, in any ground they make up there, do they threaten to lose that um, back uh, in, in rural areas and farmers is if they take hardline stances on climate policies that might some things that might make farmers uncomfortable do they they, they it, it threaten to hurt themselves there well I think you know there, there is that risk although it, it, it depends a lot on how they frame the issue and how they talk about it. I mean we all know that the trade and uh, ethanol issues are short-term you know right now problems for farmers the climate is a longer-term problem and, and, and a short-term problem also because we've seen, I mean, the flooding and the heavy rainfall. I mean, that's in Iowa, it's been said again and again by scientists and experts that, that the, the, you know, the big impact of, of a warmer climate is going to be heavier rainfall and more flooding. We saw it in southwest Iowa and other places this spring. A lot of farmers <laughs> lost an entire growing season because of all that rain. And, of course, Cedar Rapids, where I'm at, we have had two pretty, we, we had the epic flood of 2008 and then another major flood in 2016. And, you know, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to build flood protection. So these are real issues. This, uh, th there are real consequences to this climate situation. And Democrats have to talk about those consequences and their solutions. I think Pete Buttigieg has had 
an interesting way of framing the issue. He's talking about it in terms of, of you know, harming the earth is, is a sin, which might resonate with some faith voters. Also, he, in his climate plan, he's got a pretty large section dedicated to additional funding to help farmers adopt practices and researchers develop practices that will mitigate agriculture's impact on climate change. So I think you have to offer something to agriculture other than criticism, and you have to play it straight with them on what the threat is and, and explain you know, the solutions that will actually help them and not harm them. Yeah, that's a good point, and that kind of gets at what Thomas was talking about with um, some of the differences is, is just as much, of, uh, not as much about the policies, but as how the discussion is is being framed. Um, and, and and you're right also uh, about the the long-term impact of this. I, it was it was very interesting to me. One of the Iowa Press episodes I did recently was <clears throat> with some uh, state climate experts, and and, and the question that um, we posed to, uh, I believe it was a state climatologist, was is the fear here that this is the new normal when we we're talking about um, these severe floods? And he essentially said, yes, as of right now, the, um, um, you know, these the, the old hundred year floods are happening every five years now. And, and that's uh, gotta be something that um, uh, concerns um, farmers in, in rural Iowa. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that issue um, um, resonates and, and how Democrats' um, messages resonates in those areas. All right, moving on. This past week here in Iowa has been pretty quiet on the 2020 campaign trail. Um, a rare recent visit came from Tulsi Gabbard, one of the candidates who did not qualify for the next debate and is fighting to keep her campaign viable. Uh, Thomas, you covered Tulsi Gabbard at a Cedar Valley stop where it sounds like she talked about uh, being one of the first um, Iraq war era veterans to run for president, how that group is now um, starting to step up more often and run for office. Um, tell us a little bit about that message that she that she talked about and, and um, what did you see? How, you know, how how was she uh, received and did you see any signs of the room that uh, Democrats are, are still considering her and, and consider her a contender in this race? Well, I think in Waterloo, she's you know certainly still a pretty viable candidate for a lot of people that are running. She has a lot. She has a, cer a certain um, amount of support among you know Democrats that uh, that want to kind of see maybe a little bit more uh, you know centrist for Democrats run, but at the same time, um, you know someone that isn't uh, you know see someone running, you know seeing seeing a woman run and seeing a veteran run. And moreover, I think it's. You know, right now is an era where we're seeing a lot. This is the first presidential election I think we've seen where we're seeing Afghanistan and Iraq veterans with Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, and previously Seth, Mol Seth Moulton. I should also point out that uh, uh, Joe Cisak is a veteran, but uh, he did not serve in Iraq or Afghanistan, to my knowledge. He was an admiral, and he was an admiral during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, but uh, from what I understand— he was, um, you know, he was an admiral at the time of that war, so he, he, I don't think we, he was really boots on the ground at the time. Well, on the other hand, uh, people like Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and Seth Moulton, when he, were, when he was running, had boots on the ground in combat zones where, you know, there were bullets going and, you know, you had them going, uh, being part of transports, 
Now, it sh- I should also point out they were officers, so you know um, they were they you know they weren't uh, enlisted personnel. Every single person who's running right now was an officer at one point in time, which, as a former enlisted myself, I kind of want to point out that <laughs> sometimes there's a stigma that officers aren't doing as much work for are doing the same amount of work in getting quadruple the pay as enlisted. And I think that's something that should also be stated, especially considering that Pete Buttigieg running kind of on a more progressive stance as an officer, he was making essentially quadruple that of his troops in a combat zone. Just a quick note. But that's all that I just want to make sure I point that out. But as well, these are they they came in, these this is the generation of people that you know, we're in school when 9-11 happened. Um, you know, I remember, you know, myself, I was in uh, gym class, you know, uh, when 9-11 uh, happened, which is going to, the anniversary is going to be coming up soon. And with that said, um, these, these, they all joined because of that. It was, to a certain extent, uh, my gen- our generation's Pearl Harbor. And uh, the only difference is that instead of fighting a war, that was against tyranny, like and you know, world war against Hitler and a unified sec- uh, section for that. Uh, we went to war with Iraq for dubious reasons, and that's reflected in how these candidates talk. Um, you know, uh, you you hear that you hear that from uh, <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard. Well, I heard that from her just this week when I was talking to her that she would not would not necessarily. There's a certain amount of mistrust of military advisors that would be talking with them. They want to have, they would base it on their own experiences because there's a large amount of credibility that the military industrial complex has lost because of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Because in 2001, we went to war or a war began with Afghanistan and it is 2019 and there are still people dying abroad. So it should be, you know, it's Kind of important to note that, and that these are this is the generation that's running now and reflecting that. Well, when you have you know the generation of World War II veterans running, uh, such as John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon in 1960, they had a different mindset. They were coming from the Pacific and fighting in World War II, and they, they were running on the credibility of that same sort of complex. They were working with businesses. They were working with the military, and they had those credentials. They were, you know, John F. Kennedy was a war hero. Richard Nixon served. Um, you know, these are these are things that uh, are important to note, and that gave them a certain amount of credibility, more credibility than other candidates at that time. I don't think it's often really considered. I don't think a lot of candidates who these veterans, these veterans who are running, are really wearing those medals on their shoulder as much. Or not to say that um, you know John F. Kennedy or Richard Nixon did, but you, it was something that was noted. That was something. It was a shared experience that everyone kind of trusted. And I think um, there's a stigma that persisted over those two conflicts. That you know that uh, that because there was, it was uh, specifically Iraq, the dubious reasons that brought us in there were have made it so that people have more distrust of uh, of things of uh, the higher up, so to speak. And, you, um, and, and when you have, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. I was just I, that that's interesting. And, and I was going to ask you. It occurs to me. Uh, uh, I was going to ask you real quick here, Thomas. So, so for those of us who watch 
politics uh, from the outside here and observe in, in, in especially the presidential race. Um, one, of, one of the cynical questions that we can sometimes ask um, for a campaign that's maybe not gotten off the ground but is staying in the race is are, are they still running for the for just to keep their name on the forefront for a cabinet post? And that's an interesting question, though, to me. In this case, if if Democrats take back the White House and it's someone other than Tulsi Gabbard, um, could you see her as a, a secretary of defense? She, she uh, you, as you noted, there are other veterans running in this race, but she's the one who has really made, you know, veterans issues and, and especially um, talking a lot about trying to end all, uh, uh, so many of these foreign conflicts that the U.S. is involved in. Um, could you see Tulsi Gabbard as a potential Secretary of Defense for if, if the Democratic nominee? Yeah. I could certainly see her as a as a candidate for the Secretary of Defense. Um, I mean, she ha she certainly has the credentials. Um, but the question kind of has to be, um, would she be the best? Would she be, probably be the best person to be the Secretary of Defense? And I think, to a certain degree, I think Seth Moulton was doing running to be Secretary of Defense and not really president, uh, the president as well, because he also focused his campaign on veterans affairs before, yeah. uh, before he dropped out. Also talking about, yeah, I think he went on Vice News and talked about his own post-traumatic stress syndrome. But I think, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, she would certainly be, I think she'd be a candidate. Um, and I could certainly see uh, some of the some of the other candidates considering her as a she would she wouldn't be a bad choice. She's a major in the uh, Hawaii National Guard, and you know has experience in uh, you know combat zones in Kuwait. So yeah, she was. I think certainly she would be someone to consider. Yes. Yeah, interesting. All right. Uh, finally, this week, we return to last weekend's breaking news for a little more discussion about the Democratic National Party rejecting Iowa's plan for virtual caucuses as a means to include more people in the process. Todd, you wrote this week that this is a bigger problem than it should be, that the forces against any changes to the caucuses should be far outweighed by the reasons changes are being explored in the first place, and that is to, again, to make it easier for people to participate in the process that winds up with the nation's next president. Why is this so hard? Why can't we just all agree on something that makes everybody happy and gets more people involved? Well, one reason it's hard is because uh, there's a state called New Hampshire, and uh, they <laughs> there's a secretary of state in that state, Bill Gardner, has his finger always on the alert button to make sure that their primary is the first primary and that, uh, and you know, Iowa has the first caucus and they're the first in the nation primary. And so if Iowa comes up with a solution that looks anything like primary voting, absentee ballots, or would even switch to like, to a switch to a primary, obviously, you know, Bill Gardner maybe or isn't gonna like that and, and is gonna leapfrog Iowa and, and move New Hampshire's primary ahead and, and then that, you know, it becomes a free-for-all, who knows where it ends. So that's one problem is that we, you risk uh, alienating or angering New Hampshire and, and threatening, somehow threatening their primary status. Uh, I think it's probably, though, in, in New Hampshire's best interest to maybe help Iowa uh, figure this out as far as accepting some sort of hybrid uh, solution where you allow some paper absentee ballots 
the DNC's big concern was that their telephone and you know virtual caucuses could be hacked somehow. There were cybersecurity risks that they didn't like, and so that's why maybe a, a paper absentee caucus ballot might be a solution to that. But that again looks like may look too much like primary voting to New Hampshire. But I, as I said in the column, I think if 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 people start if if, the, if you start seeing big changes at the front of the presidential pecking order in these primaries and caucuses, I don't think that's good news for New Hampshire. I think once you start questioning why states are where, then maybe New Hampshire gets questioned too. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to see New Hampshire be a little bit more malleable to, to some sort of change in Iowa. I know that's tough. They're the, they're the granite state after all. So, I mean, they're, they're sort of, <laughs> they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're the, the, the mountain to overcome, but I, I think it's going to be in everyone's interest. And as you alluded to from the column, it's, I think this is a good goal. I, I think Republicans should have this goal, too, of, of not excluding people from this important process because they, they can't, you know, get to, get to the local middle school on, on caucus night for one reason or another. They, their voices should be heard also. And, and there are obviously ways that we can figure out to do that. Yeah. Is, is this admirable goal at the end of the day, in, in your view, Todd, um, worth doing what it takes and, and potentially threatening Iowa's leadoff spot? If, if it comes down to, if we do this, we're going to get moved back in the pecking order. Should the decision then be made? then yes, let's do it and, and deal with the fallout, whatever that may be. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I don't think we're to that point yet. I think there are still multiple ways that this can be accomplished without having to give up first-in-the-nation status. But, yeah, I mean, I, I do think accommodating all citizens in a, in a process that, you know, is, is accessible in an equal way to them is, you know, I think, that's, I think that should be the, the, the main goal. All right. Well, obviously, it'll be interesting. And um, for full interest of our <clears throat> listeners, we usually record the podcast on a Friday morning. So depending on when you're listening to this uh, throughout the weekend here, um, the, the DNC is holding a, a call with Iowa reporters uh, Friday afternoon. So we could get some uh, more um, light shed on this whole issue. Uh, so watch for coverage of that in your Lee and Gazette properties uh, throughout the weekend, and maybe we'll have uh, another round of discussion on this uh, yet again next week, is uh, depending on what the DNC has to say um, in that call. But that'll do it for this hey, edition Aaron? of On Iowa Politics. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Thomas. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, there's there's some uh, small. I'm just, I'm noticing there's some small breaking news kind of going down since this is about. I want to make sure I get this out there that. Apparently, Howard Schultz is dropping out of the presidential race to make room for so that way uh, Joe Biden doesn't have as much, uh, you know, uh, going against him. I just want to make sure that we we don't miss something uh, as big of a news as Howard Schultz dropping out. You just made me spit out my latte. That's how shocked I am. <laughs> There you go, folks. Trust uh, on Iowa politics to keep you up to date on the absolute latest of the most critical breaking news. Well done, Thomas. <laughs> All right. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope it was worth your time. Uh, if you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. 
fan mail can be sent to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can find our work every week on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Iowa Band, Item 9 and the Mad Hatters will play us out this week. If you know a band or a talented Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, let us know and send us a sound file. For Thomas Todd and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Come on!